So we sat down to try and come up with a new commercial, uh, just in case anybody out there is sick of the same Lil Nas X rip off, we- uh, Weird Al rip off. Uh, and then we thought about it some more. Weird, weird howly. Weird how. Anyway, here we, it is. We thought about it some more. It didn't, and 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 it didn't work. Here it is. Yeah. You know it. You love it. Royal Thai Garden. Check, 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 check. When you're looking for a treat, need something to eat. Say so what you call, cause this restaurant can't be beat. Best high and loud, right next to the ocean. All your tasty favorites and enormous portions. Royal, royal, royal tie garden. Royal, royal tie garden. Welcome to Blue White Podcast. I'm Ryan Little. I'm Josh Michaels. And we have today, you might not believe this, what? a very good episode planned. What? No, are you sure? Very special, dear that, listener. That's not usually the case. No, but this week though, Oh, this yes. week, this is a this is a must listen. Great dear friend of the show, Akemi Glenn is going to be in the building. Doctor, excuse me, Doctor Akemi Glenn. Akemi Glenn. Alumna you know, of the show. Episode 29. Episode 29. Hashtag Black August. Mm-hmm. She joined us last year. It was uh, an awesome conversation. Really good. We've been and, trying to get her back since then, but she's very in demand. Finally happened. It's coming up. It's already June. It is June. We, it's, almost, it's been almost a full calendar year. Since we've talked to her. Yeah. Well, not, well, not since we've talked to her, but since we've talked to her on air. We have seen her a few times right. in but, the real world. But still, time flies when you're That's having one fun. thing that maybe our listeners don't realize is that we actually keep up with... Pretty much all of our guests. It's a, sm- it's a small town. We run into these people. And they're they're wonderful people, and that's why we interview them. Uh, but before you, we get into that... Do you taste metal? I have in my... That's a, before. That's a Chernobyl joke. Oh. Have you been watching Chernobyl? No. Listeners, if you've been watching Chernobyl, you get that. I have heard so many good things it's about Chernobyl. tremendous television. And I, I know... It, I mean, it's a fascinating incident. Yeah. And, and that whole like... You know what? Speaking of fascinating incidents, Liverpool Football Club won the oh, sixth man. European Cup in their glorious, illustrious <laughs> history. I feel like I walked right in. Champions that. of Europe, folks. Uh, other good sports news. Well, I don't want to jinx it just yet. The Toronto Raptors are up 3-1 on the Golden State Warriors. Is that good sports news, though? It I is like for the haters, the haters out there, you know. Obviously, I'm jinxing it all right now. By the time this comes out, the Warriors will have tied the series. I'm sure. I just so I feel take this with a grain of salt. The thing about the Warriors is yeah. like, it's just hard for me to not like them. Like the one person on that team that I don't like is Draymond Green. Why Draymond? Because he kicks people in the dick whenever <laughs> they're beating him. Well, no, this is you know they're saying like, oh Kevin, Durant, you know Kevin Durant's out. This isn't fair. Blah 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 blah. Without Kevin Durant, they looked incredible. Uh, against the Portland Trailblazers, not to mention they won, you know, they won some rings or they were competitive for titles without Kevin Durant. They won, they won. Yeah, they won. Maybe two. And it's just, this is just injury karma coming back around because, you know. Everybody's hurt. uh, Right. And the, you know, the Warriors won one against the Cavs when Kyrie was injured. 
They beat the Spurs when Kawhi was injured. They beat the Rockets when CP3 was injured. You know, it's just, that's how it is. People get hurt. Deal with it. Speaking of people hurting, yeah. uh, hurting. according to an article by Farhad Manju, yes. America's cities are unlivable. Yeah. And you can blame wealthy liberals. That's true. Uh, wealthy, yeah, folks. It's The problem is not liberal or conservative. It's rich and poor. Yeah. And I feel like we've and, been very honest about that. Yeah. Like, there's every well, problem in the world comes down to people saying, no, I've got mine and I don't care yeah. about you. And in what that looks like in practice is more or less rich people trying to avoid paying taxes yeah. and trying to make more money off of the labor of poor people. Yeah. So this is this, this is, is the, not really a surprising this article. Is the kick, you know, uh, our friend Nate Hicks has talked about this before. Proposed changes to housing zoning, allowing more apartment buildings, other you know, folk, places where people can actually live, allowing more stuff to be built. Uh, and I they think he actually no. talked about that off air. Well, we talked about it off air, but he talks about it all the time. If you hang around Nate Hicks <laughs> long enough, he'll start talking about housing zoning. Even if you don't, even just follow him on yeah. Twitter or something. Uh, here's the kicker from the article. Reading opposition to SB 50, this California bill that was rejected by wealthy white liberals, uh, and other efforts at increasing density, I'm struck by an unsettling thought. What Republicans want to do with ICE and border walls, wealthy progressive Democrats are doing with zoning and nimbyism, preserving local character, maintaining in air quotes. local control, also, also in air, air quotes. quotes, keeping housing scarce and inaccessible. The goals of both sides are really the same, to keep people out. And I think that's 100% true. I think if you look at Nancy Pelosi worth $100 million in her in her little enclave in San Francisco. That's a lot of money. Yeah. Like, she, is not, she does not understand what ordinary people are going through. Absolutely not. And, and I think... Everybody understands that we have an affordability crisis in terms of housing in the United States. Uh, what people don't understand is that the answer to that crisis is actually relatively straightforward, which is just supply and demand. Build more, more houses and for working, just anybody, ordinary. Just build folks. more houses for anybody. Yeah, it doesn't well, that, 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 even if you because if you build them for wealthy people and they're all ten million dollars, eventually they're going people are going to not buy them and the price is lower, right? Like it's it's. Supply and I mean, obviously, well, no, you'd no, no, want to gear it towards poor people. There are but, there are enough international billionaires to just snap them all up. But they would there would be no demand, so there's no it. There's the, still, I mean, the, I've found you know they like the tax cuts for the rich, right? They said this is it. This is going to juice the economy. Here we go, and rich people just keep getting more and more money, and they just sit on it. Oh, I, I I'm not disagreeing in in that rich people get more money. I'm just saying that the solution is build more housing generally, like just build more and more and more and more and more and. It doesn't, it shouldn't be for rich people, but I'm just saying just build something. Yeah. Like what they're doing in San Francisco is they're not building anything. And if, or if they're building, they're knocking down an old home and building a newer home. Yeah. And what you need to do is build density. And that's what the article hints at, which is typically uh, measured by people per acre. So in the case of what our friend Nate Hicks talks about is increasing density uh, to about 16 people per acre. So what he would do is take 10,000 square foot lots or 5,000 square foot lots um, and then turn those into fourplexes. Um, say 5,000, that's closer to the average lot size. So then you would actually, the average uh, acre is 40,000 square feet thereabout. So you would actually increase the density to four times 
you'd get eight, so thirty-two people per acre. Now, how is that different from monster homes and like that other, you know, th- that sort of controversy? The funny thing is, is that it's not. Yeah, and and the, it's the, just it's just all about political framing. Monster homes. Well, it, are yes an and issue. no, because yeah. the the thing is, is that where zoning comes into play is maintaining the character of a neighborhood. So where a monster home doesn't work is we've got um, little Ohana homes with cute little yards and nice landscaping and beautiful fences. And then somebody, some international investor who cares nothing about the quality of the neighborhood comes in, concretes over the whole lot and puts in, you know, a 19 bedroom uh, house. And it's a little different because what you're doing, if you're doing uh, responsible development is you're maintaining uh, you're maintaining like the aesthetic character of the neighborhood while increasing density overall. Where you can see really good examples of that is in other major metropolitan areas like Washington, D.C. Uh, they do a phenomenal job of it. Even if you go to parts of New York, they do a really good job of it. But those and cities are still expensive and almost unaffordable. They they are, but it the problem is not because of their not because of their aesthetic zoning ordinances. It's because they still have the fundamental problem of a lack of supply and zoning ordinances in terms of, you know, it needs to be a nice paint color or it needs to like, you know, feature X amount of uh, landscaping, assuming it's a reasonable number that doesn't keep the supply down. It's the more uh, fundamental aspects of uh, land is incredibly expensive and we don't have the ability to take one lot and bisect it or quadrisect it into multiple units of housing. Hmm. Uh, what Nate will tell you, listeners, if you ever talk with Nate about this subject, is that um, if you change the island of Oahu's zoning code to allow every single family homeowner to uh, turn their home into a quadruplex or turn their lot into a quadruplex, um, only one eighth of the total homes of Oahu, on Oahu, single family homes, would need to take advantage of that zoning uh, to completely solve the housing shortage, it would create interesting ninety thousand units. And how many people would that house? Well, ninety thousand units. Yeah, would at least ninety thousand. At least ninety thousand people. I mean, if how, you have yeah. average family size, say your average family size or average average household size, excuse me, is two and a half people, then you're looking at like two hundred twenty thousand. That's a lot. Not too shabby. Yeah. So anyways. But you know what's actually better than that, I've found? What's Uh, that? Complaining about homeless people while not building any more housing. Which is what we're already doing. Right, which I feel like is is definitely the sustainable status quo. The article talks uses a term called nimbyism, uh, which I think a lot of people are probably familiar with, but we'll explain anyways. Not Um, in my backyard. Nimby, yep. And so what it basically says is, yes, we do need to address this problem. I saw this a lot when I lived in Atlanta because I lived in a neighborhood that was rapidly gentrifying. Yep. And so people are saying, oh, we need to build affordable housing. We need to make sure that we can maintain the local character of the neighborhood. Easiest way to do that is we're forcing out, say, 500 residents because their homes are down too expensive. Let's build a 500-unit affordable housing uh, apartment building that will actually probably be a higher quality than their current home, will feature you know, amenities they right now could never dream of having, and it'll all be at an affordable rent. And people said that's a great idea just don't build it anywhere near my house yeah and i don't want to look at that thing i don't want to look at that thing or what if it's gonna obstruct my view or oh my god the thing you'd always hear about in atlanta is it's gonna make so much traffic because traffic in atlanta is great already you know Uh, it's it's just that's what you'll hear here too is oh what about the traffic and it's like yeah or well 
you know, what about all the undesirable elements that will move into the Which is really what they're saying, right? Yeah. Is I don't want poor people here because I can't relate to them culturally. I'm scared of poor people. I'm scared. Well, and the reason that they're scared of them is because they think uh, what I realized in my time working with wealthy people yeah. is that they that they think that poor people are desperate. And the funny thing is, poor people are desperate. Yeah. And they're not desperate because of anything other than the policies that you supported no, that systematically rather than, rather than examine, them. Yeah, rather than examine the world we live in as a direct result of the policies that our leadership and our governments and our society puts into place, we 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 transpose it all like no it must be a moral failing it, yeah poor people are poor because it's an intrinsic yeah. failure of their own that's the making. whole yeah that's the whole uh the conservative ethos that's the ben shapiro you know facts don't care about your feelings like well another thing doesn't care yeah. about your feelings yes graduate school debt graduate school debt does not care about uh my feelings and i know because i've got quite a bit of it uh, same yeah same so what do we what specifically about graduate student debt so it's other than the fact that like everybody's got it and it's completely strangling the economy and it's the probably going to be responsible for the next great economic catastrophe in this country enough said other than that yeah should we just move on <laughs> all right ladies and gentlemen coming up soon dr akemi glenn no uh, we have a little bit more we have a oh, little bit more, more. One thing that the that this article from the New York Times called "Biggest Defender in Outsized Debt: Graduate Schools," uh, which is the least surprising article title yeah. ever, uh, they talk about schools that are not quite for profit but are still extorting their students. Uh, for instance, the Academy of Art, uh, which is for profit in San Francisco, I think. Oh, is it for profit? Pretty sure. Okay. Um, so the average debt load of a graduate from the Academy of Art is one hundred thousand two hundred fifty-two. Um, the school offers nine master's programs with an average loan balance of above $90,000. It also talks about Ross University in St. Kitts, where many American veterinary students have accumulated large debts. Uh, this is a problem that I actually saw several years ago emerging, probably when I was in college. There was this big push in like 2011, as especially as Alabama was struggling to recover um, from the Great Recession. There was this big push to go into degrees that would make you a lot of money, right? And I wish they would have said it in 2008 when I was going to college, but they didn't, so yada, yada. Uh, but I knew this one girl who was trying to get into med school and God love her, she was trying to do it because I think she wanted to help people, but really she just wanted something that would have a stable career outlook. But like, she just, she couldn't get into American med school. I mean, she she missed it like three or four times. So she went to Caribbean med school? So she went to a Caribbean med school. For like $300,000 of debt? For More than that. I mean, the number that she told me was, I, I, I can't recall. I want to say it was well north of half a million for wow. her to go to school in the Caribbean and take on this massive debt load to get a degree that's not well-respected. You're, I mean, at most, you're probably, you'll be lucky to make Hundred and fifty thousand a year is like a generalist somewhere. Like you're definitely not going to be a surgeon and make the big bucks, and you're going to have a debt load hanging over you that is basically Ooh, unpayable. Like a mortgage. Like a, it's more yeah. than. I mean, and of course, thanks to it, thanks it's to like a mortgage. Mortgage, except it's at nine percent and it's not dischargeable in bankruptcy. Thanks to Joe Biden. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks to Joe Biden, it's not your student loans are not dischargeable in bankruptcy. Yep. Which is fun. Um, moving on to a happier subject, let's talk about the political costs of not impeaching Donald Trump. Yeah. Uh, this do, article do from GQ, which has actually become him. a pretty just, good... Just impeach him. Like, just impeach him. You didn't let me finish my no, spiel I, on I know, GQ. No, I but like, I'm so... I'm, I don't understand. I don't get what the big deal is. Well, just let me talk about GQ okay. for a second. And Hit me with since it. Trump's come to power, they've actually been a pretty good reporting outfit. That's all I had to say. 
uh, or at least they've had good opinion pieces. Yeah, the the it's I, I will say that I do appreciate. Yeah, I, I, here's what I think is happening. So this piece, this piece was written by Adam Gentleson, who uh, worked for Sen- uh, Senator Harry Reid when he was Majority Leader in the U.S. Senate. Now retired Harry Reid of Nevada. So, well, what I was going to say is, I th- I think the strategy here, from what I've seen from all the politicos that I follow, is let's not impeach, yeah. but let's have a slow drip of negative news coming against Trump all the time until the election. You know what else would do that? What? Impeachment. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think that the the fear is that you're going to give him a win because yet the Senate, there's no way that even after a trial, assuming they went to a trial, yeah. they would certainly acquit him because yeah. the Senate has no backbone. I and Mitch McConnell. No, but yeah, you make you make each Republican senator, you make him get up there and say Well, I, I think the thing is that you, have you heard the rally around the flag effect where it's like presidents who are present during times of disaster yeah. are uh they have really high approval ratings like Bush after 9-11 yeah. because there's this effect where everyone wants to rally around the flag. And I think as so many Republicans yeah. or conservatives, people, or maybe even swing voters who see Trump as the flag now, God, as I know, and it's it sucks to have to do this analysis. Mr. This is, Mr. Flag, you know, he, he hugged the flag. I think <laughs> Donald Trump wants to fuck the flag. <laughs> it's, as they see him as the flag. And I think the thing is, is that that's fucking crazy. Whenever it, but the thing is, okay, so you, you go to impeach him, yeah. and I think he's gonna try to rally people around him. And the, I think the fear is on the left, is that you're going to rally his supporters, and then even some non-supporters who just think that impeachment might be a frivolous political play, and they're going to vote him into office again in 2020. Well, he's the favorite to get reelected already. And, you know, you look at Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton, He's not the favorite right now, no, he sh- I think but he, he should, should be he the should. favorite. So Bill Clinton, for example, the Senate decided not to convict Bill Clinton. Uh, and the conventional wisdom was then, oh, you know, uh, it was bad for Republicans. Republicans ended up losing seats, blah, 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 blah. George W. Bush was able to run the entire 2000 campaign on restoring dignity and all this BS. And Al Gore couldn't campaign with an incredibly popular president. And it worked. But the uh, that is to some extent true well i mean al gore did probably come close to winning if yeah. not for you know, I mean, Supreme he, Court, he, but he won um he won he won but the the other thing is though is you're comparing apples to oranges because you're looking at democratic voters who will actually listen yeah. and have some semblance of shame regarding the idea of being hypocritical and right their whereas, views. whereas Repu- the average republican voter thinks uh, whatever Mitch McConnell le- says, left-leading right. views are illegitimate and inherently yeah. unpatriotic anyway. So it doesn't it doesn't matter. That that's you, I don't think that same analysis is fair. Okay. And I think the problem is is that if you don't impeach him, you risk legitimizing his behavior. You're basically just saying we're not going to a cha- to challenge somebody who does this because in a partisan time we might not win. Yeah. And it's like you're. St- no, the letting, problem is you're abdicating your moral yeah, you're authority. Letting, you're, if you're if you're not even going to try to impeach him, then you're 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 giving the sign off on any any absolutely. Substitute. And if you think for if you think for one second the Republicans wouldn't hesitate, oh, you know, it seems a little too partisan right now. No, they absolutely. Yeah, would. Do you, can you imagine if? I mean, it, it, it's it's cliche at this point, but if Obama did one one thousandth of any of if the, Hillary did it, yeah. They if, would be. They would have. They would yeah. have burned down the White House. No, totally. So, I mean, it would be. It would be a literal, yeah. like, civil war going on. Maybe like, we should have. Maybe we should just have a civil war. It kind of feels like we need a civil war. I just don't want to fight in it. Right. What like I really want to like do. A cold civil. We already have a cold civil war. Yeah. What I really want. I don't want to say what I really want. 
<laughs> that's that wouldn't be that wouldn't be nice i want the president of the united states i i want god's will to be done in his life whatever that will is okay <laughs> well jesus says pray for your enemies i realized for the first time like literally yesterday i was like i've always taken that verse like, i don't really have any enemies and i was like yesterday i was like you know what i feel like mitch mcconnell donald trump like they are like legitimate enemies of mine the enemy of the people enemy of the people anyway talking about post trump yeah there's a guy named josh hawley and according to um yeah, it's gonna be the washington versus, post I him believe, versus tom cotton in 2024 uh, get ready josh hawley could be the face of post trump gop uh he is a freshman senator yeah. he beat claire mccaskill out because claire uh medicare for all we can't afford it we can't have nice things nothing good is ever going to pass mccaskill yeah. uh, who lost by a wide margin of missouri uh josh hawley is basically He's basically a theocrat. Yeah. I mean, I really don't know. He, he like says he's, a, he's not. He's a straight up theocrat. He says he's not a theocrat, but then he uses the term Pelagian morals. Yeah. Uh, he used it a lot and he, talk, he uses that term quite a bit. For those of you who don't know, Pelagius, because I didn't know who it was and I had to Google it, Pelagius was an early church thinker who believed that people could do good things apart from uh, being baptized into Jesus's like followers. Yeah. The the common belief, and it actually may still be um, the dogma of the Catholic Church, is that until you're baptized, you can do no good thing because well, of the Josh Hawley. He's not. That's not a Catholic belief. That he he is a. That's a. But that's. A, he's a Presbyterian, like I, evangelical I, yeah. Presbyterian. But the he's the same. But that's, that's the same. That's the same sect that. Oh, it was responsible for the the shooting at the synagogue in San Diego. No, right? I don't. I don't know if it is. It was the one that the guy in San Diego went to was like a super super like I don't use the term orthodox, but super super orthodox like, Presbyterian. Like it's said Presbyterian. Yeah. In the same way like that Christian like Christian ISIS, basically. Yeah, it's like it's said Presbyterian in the same way that like uh, you could be called like the Unitarian Christian Church. And it's like oh, you say you know what I mean? It's like. Yeah. We're kind of for everything, but like tangential or like uh, yeah. nominally Christian. Uh, Good so times. I, yeah. So anyways, Josh Hawley talks about Pelagius a lot. Yeah. And it's basically his point is that you can't do good things unless you're a Christian. Woo. And that's one of their rising stars. So get ready for that. That's uh, fun. Sharia law is not what we need to worry about. Yeah. No, Tom And Tom Cotton, uh, uh, the, his, do you see his defense of... Oh, uh, the soy the soybean farmers in Iowa getting soaked on tariffs. He said, "Well, that's a sacrifice, but it's no sacrifice compared to the sacrifice that our men troops. and women of the United States yeah. military make every single day to defend our freedom." So we're going on one hand, we've got theocratic fascism. On the other hand, we've got like regular old fashioned fascism and uh, nationalism. Yeah, and a little bit of you know. Uh, oh, how is Duncan Hunter in response to all this war crime stuff? Like, well, yo, I I killed I killed civilians. Does that make me a war criminal? Yes, yes, yes. It literally makes you a war criminal among other types of criminal. Like yeah. you're multiple types of criminal. You're just not a Duncan Hunter. Probably another one of my enemies. There are not. There are a lot of not very good people in our government right now. Well, it sucks because then, as a Christian, I'm supposed to pray for them, and I yeah. don't really know how to pray for them. Well, if, if you're a Christian listening to this, and yeah. you've got suggestions on how to pray for your enemies whenever your enemies are literally trying to hurt people, but the thing is, Jesus con he contemplated that. He said, "Pray for those who spitefully use you." Yeah, it's no, like what it's going on right now. Well, if not spitefully using me, as as uh, as. as Josh Hawley's version of Jesus, Josh Hawley, Josh, Josh, that's nice. As Josh Hawley's version of Jesus would say, uh, if someone strikes you on the cheek, turn the other cheek and, and then, then nuke them. them and then beat the <laughs> hell out of him. 
Then <laughs> turn the other cheek, and, grab a knife, and cut take their throat. His, and take his child and put him in a cage. Yeah. Um, okay, can, one can more. We just, can we just stop and like, get to a cameo already? I'm just, I hate, I hate all of this. No, we have one more really uplifting article. Uh, uh, this one from Adam Sorwer in The Atlantic. Uh, it's called A White Man's Republic, If They Can Keep It. This is incredibly uplifting. Uh, <sighs> this article is about, uh, basically, it starts off with a... Trump is Trump is not the cause, he's a symptom. Yeah, and it starts off with um, a little vignette of when this, the Voting Rights Act was repealed in Shelby versus Holder, where Scalia, uh, basically the worst justice we ever had, maybe Thomas is worse, because Thomas is actually a dummy, at least Scalia was smart, Um he, Scalia, as far as we know, is not a sexual deviant. Was not a sexual deviant. He true. was just a regular deviant. That's true. Just a moral deviant. Just a moral deviant. Yeah. Uh, morally. Emotionally deviant. More bankrupt. Morally yeah. bankrupt. Anyways, basically Scalia in. God the, rest his soul. <laughs> <laughs> praying for him. Praying for um, you, Antonin. That's what that's what Christians say. It's yeah. like oh, it's God, like a God very bless. way of saying like bless your heart. It's like oh I'll I'll pray for you. Yeah, we'll be praying for you. They uh, never pray for you. Yeah. Anyways, um, Scalia called the Voting Rights Act a racial entitlement. Yeah. Oh, like black people getting special treatment. Just <laughs> they get because, special treatment just because just because we wouldn't let them vote for four hundred years. Just because we enslaved just them. Just because we, yeah. And the, basically, so uh, for those of you who haven't been paying attention to this and tracking this over the last several years. Um, Voting Rights Act guaranteed black people the right to vote and didn't let racist states uh, or previously racist states have the ability to make arbitrary laws that would restrict black people's ability to vote. Under what is under what is known as preclearance uh, in the event, and we saw immediately after the Voting Rights Act went away, all these states passed laws designed to do just this. If a state passed a law, if it was one of the states that was targeted under the Voting Rights Act as having a history of racism, discrimination, official government policy... Uh, any Basically law, the southern states. Any, right. Any law or change that was passed had to be reviewed and approved by the Federal Justice Department. So... Uh, of course, now that's gone, and now the DOJ is being run by cronies. At this point, so, it probably wouldn't have mattered anyway. Right. But Well, maybe it would have, because black people maybe would have voted. But here's an example of how that worked. So down south um, in Alabama, if yeah. you have listened to the show at any length of time, you know that's where I'm from. There's an area called the Black Belt. It's called the Black Belt for two reasons. Number one, uh, it was a huge... Uh, slave population down there a lot of plantations and so there's this little belt around the center of the state where it's overwhelmingly black um also called the black belt because it has some of the most fertile soil in the entire country it's this very rich black loamy soil so it's kind of a double entendre but uh black people were very politically engaged selma alabama if you've heard of the yeah. edmund pettus bridge the march to selma is located in the black belt uh as soon as the voting rights act was repealed that the part that Josh talked about, preclearance, it says you cannot change, uh, you cannot materially change the conditions that would allow somebody to vote. As soon as it happened, they closed down almost all of the local polling places yep. that black people had to go to. Then they started passing voter ID laws, which on their face don't sound like a bad idea, right? You don't want somebody to vote, take your vote, and then apply it however they wanted except to by just saying, fraud, oh yeah. Except voter fraud doesn't actually happen. It doesn't actually happen, but... Yeah, I can see the idea like, well, maybe we should allow them, yeah. we should allow this law. But here it goes a step further. You had to have a driver's license, right? You couldn't have like your, you couldn't use your uh, federal uh, subsidy, like subsidized housing card. Um, so you have to get your driver's license from the DMV. College students also can't use their school IDs. That's true. And so you couldn't, you had to have a driver's license. You had to go to the DMV. Then they closed down all the DMVs in the black belt. 
And so the nearest DMV is now 50 miles away from the black belt. Most of these people don't have cars. Most of them can't get paid time off. Most of them have no transportation to get around. And so basically what you're doing is you're making a barrier and then you're making a barrier to the barrier. And so you're setting people two steps back, which is why voter ID laws, while on their face, they don't seem to be that bad of an idea are an terrible idea and completely take away poor people's rights to vote. So a quote from the article, now that you've got all of this history is, uh, the risk with Trump was not that the GOP would become a vehicle for the preservation of white political and cultural hegemony. It was that he would discredit that project by making its agenda explicit by saying as Scalia did the quiet part out loud. Yep. Now, so when Donald, you know, when Donald Trump, before Donald Trump came on the scene, Republicans had plausible deniability about a lot of this. They were able to say, no, this is just about election security. Blah, blah, blah. There was an incident, for example, uh, in 2012, there was some Pennsylvania state GOP official got on a hot mic and said, we passed voter ID, which is going to allow Governor Romney to win the state of Pennsylvania. So it was, it was, it's been obvious to political observers that if not, if not actual racism, the motivation is partisanship, partisan politics. Absolutely. Now, however, the dude who was the architect of all these laws uh, a North Carolina GOP operative, he died and his super progressive daughter found his flash drive that has basically like pages and pages and pages and pages and pages of information explicitly saying... His whole plan. The whole plan. It's basically... Here are the blacks. The files, we got the blacks. The file is basically called How to Keep Black People from Voting. Dot PDF. <laughs> dot PDF. Dot, <laughs> dot doc. Yeah. So found that. That is in court now. The, the, the federal courts are reviewing that as part of... The ongoing case, you know, to decide the legality of a lot of these laws that are going on right now, and in much of the same way that, you know, when 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 people on the right and people sympathetic to those on the right talk about like, oh, it was really, you know, a lot of people were motivated by by economic anxiety, and that's the reason they voted for Donald Trump, which uh, does not pass the smell test, no, to es- say the least, especially not when you consider the greater circumstances and the greater context in which all this is happening which is hey we've got the literal plan yeah (laughs) like top secret yeah do not show to democrats yeah uh how do we keep black folks from voting well it's really about you know we have to secure our borders yeah you know we have to have border security if we don't have border security wait actually those norwegian immigrants they're totally fine don't worry about them (laughs) the It's basically well, all BS. And yeah, everything is BS. I'll tell you what's not BS yeah. is the interview that we're about to have. Oh, yes. Uh, we have, as Folks, we mentioned at the top, Dr. Kemi Glenn. Great friend of the show. Great friend of the fan show. Fan favorite. She is back after nearly a year off the show. Uh, a lot has happened. She's got a whole bunch of new, exciting, big projects she's working on. Uh, just continuing to be... Awesome. An awesome, wonderful delight and... A pleasure to know her and get to speak with her. And we're excited. It's coming up next. Stay tuned. The Hawaii Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, we are back. You know her. You love her. Dr. Akemi Glenn is a Honolulu-based scholar and culture worker. She holds an MA and PhD in linguistics from the University of Hawaii at Maanoa and a BA in linguistics from New York University. Her research considers the interplay of space, geography, community, and language. Her primary interests are in how indigenous peoples, refugees, captives, migrants, and other diasporic peoples in the Pacific and the Americas use language to construct, navigate, and politicize their identities. She is the founder and curator of the Popolo Project, a multimedia exploration of blackness in Hawaii and the larger Pacific. And she is hosting Saltwater People, a cool ass party, not my words, not hers, at uh, the Hyatt Centric Waikiki, June 23rd, Sunday. We're going to tell you more about that. But now. Also, 
Yes. Episode 29 alum. Also an alum of the illustrious episode 29, one of our best rated episodes of all time. We keep getting comments about it a she, year later. I was I told my wife this morning, like today we're interviewing Kemi and I did like, the same thing. And and quote, Jordan was like, "Oh, she's going to be awesome." Yeah. Bas- basically, yeah. That's what Tony said. Uh, yeah. podcast approved, wife approved. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Glenn, how are you? I'm great. I'm glad to hear that your wives love me. That's they very do. validating. <laughs> I'm I'm to be honest with you, I, I am glad they love you. I'm actually more glad that our wives love us. Yeah, because that's more important, clearly. <laughs> clearly. You know, uh, it depends on the day. I yeah. was like, well, if if she can't if it if it can't be me, at least it's a Kimmy. At least yeah, it's a Kemi right. Yeah, I'm happy. Yeah. yeah, you're gonna you'll be my substitute. Yeah. Clearly yeah. your wives have excellent taste, so that's yeah, exactly. all that really matters. Because they like us and they like you. Yeah. yeah. This is, uh, you 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 really uh, round us out in terms of the uh, not just the credentialing, the sophistication as well. So That's we, true. Appre- we appreciate you joining <laughs> us and helping us elevate our I'm game. I'm happy to be here with you guys. Yeah. So what you joined us last August for hashtag Black August. Uh, you, we saw you at the live show back in November. Uh, we saw you earlier this spring. But why don't you tell us? Why don't you tell us what's been going on? Yeah. Well, lots of stuff is always going on. Um, you know, just kind of um, we're building the Popolo Project. We are just about to celebrate our second year as a nonprofit. It seems like we've been around much longer because we've does. been doing a I lot. I feel like of it's things. been around like ten years. Yeah, now. it yeah. feels like that. Some days, you guys, some are, like days, the, you guys are like the furniture. Like, yeah. <laughs> some days we feel brand new, but um, this August we'll be celebrating our second wonderful um, or our our second full year. So this will be our third Black August that we're celebrating here in Honolulu. We have a lot of really cool stuff. Um, planned for the summer, especially in August, that we're excited to share with the larger community. I remember that last year you guys did a really cool Juneteenth celebration. We're coming up on Juneteenth. Do you guys have anything planned for that this year? We don't. We're actually we're focusing on our, our new party, Saltwater People, which okay. is going to be the the following weekend from Juneteenth. But there are a lot of wonderful community events. Um, one cool. of the things that we discovered last year when we offered our own Juneteenth was that there are people doing stuff. Um, there are a number of churches yeah. and um, civic groups that hold kind of small Juneteenth gatherings all throughout the island. And all, we kind ages, of found the same all ages, thing. all backgrounds? Or? Yeah, uh, you know, certainly a lot of it's concentrated around military bases, okay. um, certain uh, congregations that are that have more black folks sure. in them. Um, and On um, and off base or off base? Um, on and off base. Okay, yeah. Cool. So, um, we are trying to kind of be a, a clearinghouse for that, even though we're not offering a Juneteenth, uh, gathering this year, we want folks to know what's going on right so on. people can check out our website and see what other folks are doing. We'll direct them there. Killer. Yeah. Okay. Tell us about saltwater people. Yeah. So saltwater people is a really, um, I'm very excited about it. This is something that's been a long time coming. Um, a number of people in our community have said that they wanted a day party, a time to gather in the daytime. Some of us are, are old and need to go to sleep at night, <laughs> but still want an opportunity to... to I was in bed to, by 9.20 last night. Yeah. Friday that's night. The, that's the yeah, dream. That's, that's how to Good do job it. Good Shabbos. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so. um, but a lot of people have, have expressed wanting to you know celebrate, um, see each other, and also have an opportunity to learn in a space like this. So cool. Saltwater People, um, the name comes from a, a phrase that has been used in the Atlantic world for a long time. Saltwater Negroes or saltwater Creoles were people who had made the ocean crossing to the New World, to the Americas from Africa. And often that phrase was used as a pejorative. So you would get like a new shipment of enslaved people trafficked in. And um, those who had been generationally enslaved sometimes were disparaging to these people. Um, Sometimes, you know, the way that we talk about like fobs and, Mm. you know, people, new immigrants. Um, but these saltwater Negroes um, were also the people who replenished the culture and connection to the homeland. 
So in Hawaii, we're all saltwater people in a way. We've all, you know, even if we're Polynesians and native, we have a relationship to the ocean. Yeah. And this party is a way for us to kind of explore those, those similarities and experiences. So we're featuring uh, live music and DJs and dance music, vendors, food uh, that celebrates the connections between all of us with a focus on African diaspora and Pacific Island experience. Cool. Tell us about, tell us about who will be joining you. Yeah, we're really, really excited. We have two really amazing live performers who are going to be opening up for us. We have Marianne Ito, who is a Japanese and Samoan soul singer. She's got an amazing voice and, and presence. Um, she just released a new live album uh, with Aloha Got Soul, that record label, oh, live at the Atherton, which is just phenomenal. We're really excited to have her with us for a live set. We also have Kanma who is an amazing musician, um, nominated for Hoku's many times. She's uh, she's done reggae music, soul music. She's originally from Liberia and uh, has a new music project that's really celebrating her roots that she's willing to share with us. And then we have some really fun DJs that are gonna be with us. Um, we have DJ Funky Brewster, who used to live here and has just returned to Hawaii. And we're also really fortunate to have the Freakazoids who are based in Seattle and coming out. Um, one of the, the DJ OC notes actually was here in February uh, when we supported uh, Sound Shop and um, Shabazz Palaces was here. He's the DJ for Shabazz Palaces as well. So we're really excited to have those guys back. God, I, we talked about this on off air because folks, we talk with people before we start recording. They don't just come in and we immediately record and just like interrogate them. And my overwhelming sense Anytime I hear you talk about something, Akemi, and I said it once and I'll say it again, it's just so goddamn cool. Like everything that you just said is so cool. I'm like, I'm never going to be that cool. <laughs> I mean, you have a very cool podcast. Said no one ever. You're, <laughs> <laughs> you're well on your way to cool. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, this sounds amazing. I don't yeah. think we could get the same lineup for podcast people or yeah. salt salt cast people i don't know uh, it what, is work so it's a one work of the things that you brought up that i think is was really interesting even just the theme of saltwater people because i think um everybody knows polynesian culture's connection to the ocean right like they're the original voyagers i mean they went all over the world in freaking canoes um but i don't think people talk enough about the connection between african cultures and saltwater i mean i think a lot of times when people think of Africa they think of like the savanna or they think of like you know the plains but like it's surrounded by water y'all and like there's so many like and there are rivers there, you know? yeah and lakes there's some of the biggest lakes in the world yeah. are in Africa yeah, yeah. Was it a little river called the Nile a little river called the Congo the biggest yeah. in the world yeah. Yeah. yeah it's like there's there's so so many rich cultural tra traditions that sprung up around the ocean I mean as we're talking about salt water like mm -hmm. the ocean that I think we're we probably are less informed about in general American society for two reasons. Number one, we only care about ourselves, and number two, because we decimated a lot of those cultural traditions mm -hmm. with the slave trade. But so, or so not but so. I think something like what you guys are doing is really really cool and drawing the parallels there. And 
I would be very excited to attend something like this. Yes, I hope you will. And I think I think your point is a, is a good one around the way that we envision spaces that we don't necessarily have connection to. And Africa is like one of the Africa, Asia. They're, they're amazing sites for people to project their stuff onto oh, sure. um, the dark continent, right? Yeah. You know, so people are often really surprised to find out that, you know, even though Africa was deeply impacted by the slave trade, there's still people there who are still practicing their cultural traditions. Yeah. Um, and culture evolves over time. And so people are resilient. And I think one of the issues with the way that we envision Africa also has to do with Europe's and European cultural kind of hegemonies, sure. um, relationship to what Africa provides, right? So it has, pro- has provided, so it provides labor, and resources, resources that can yeah. be extracted. And so salt water is not necessarily one that we often think about. We don't think about people's relationships to water often. Um, but I mean, a lot of that extraction is happening in river deltas that are minerally rich. Yeah. Um, and I think it is important for us to think about that. And then also for us as people of African descent who are living in, in the diaspora now, who are products of the trauma of, of the Atlantic uh, human trafficking scheme over several hundred years, we often have a lot of trauma around water. You know, yeah. there are lots of ancestors yeah. who died in the Middle Passage. Um, there are lots of lots of spirits that that people feel um, still stuck there. There's also the experience. I was just talking to a colleague uh, a couple of weeks ago, Keto Swan, who's an amazing scholar at Howard University in D.C., um, who's from Bermuda, and he was mm. talking about the process of becoming an island person or maybe a saltwater person for a lot of people who were trafficked where they might have come from the interior yeah. and then brought to the Caribbean or, or other coastal areas. Um, they had to readapt to their environment. And it wasn't just that they were cogs that got picked up in place someplace where they brought their own spiritual traditions and their own ecological knowledge to new places. And there was actually a process of making people who maybe were, maybe were river people or maybe savannah people yeah. into island people. And then that's something that's still ongoing. And I think that's a process that we can see happening in Hawaii, especially for those of us who've moved here from places that are not exactly like this island or these places. That's a very interesting, everything you say is interesting, but... um, Well, it it ties into what you say about like, when we look at Africa the whole through like the Western, you know, we, because of the European experience, we put it through this lens uh, and to the same, to the same, we're not talking about individual specific countries or cultures. We talk about like the whole, you paint the continent with this whole brush and the same way you're, you know, talking about. We don't even talk about countries most of yeah. the time. We yeah. just say Africa. Right. These, these in, the motherland, yeah, mm-hmm. these individuals coming through. We also, to your exact point about somebody from the interior bringing their own traditions, bringing their experiences. We don't, when we look, when we think about this history, we don't give these individuals agency. We look at just like, this is something that happened to them. They were mm-hmm. acted upon. They were brought and they were continued to act upon and act upon and act upon and and one of the ways to create the, a better understanding of agency is exactly events like this mm-hmm. i think and this is, it's very cool to hear it's going to be a cool party but there's also going to be like learning discussing the, the the great education that comes around whenever you hang out with a chemical and there's always something <laughs> to be learned which is which is super cool i i think two things first uh the idea of like becoming and island person uh has i i can see analysis there in like several different lenses uh not the least of which is my own because i'm not from an island and to get used to that culture even when i don't have the same barriers to entry as would somebody from africa going to bermuda or 
you know, God forbid being trafficked across the Atlantic in the 1600s or something. Um, it is a process. Like there is like cultural transmission that has to occur and like reconceptualizing space, like concept reconceptualizing, um, even not just space, but like distance and language and communication, what you can say, what you can't say, like things that normally would be attenuated over the friction of distance now are like hit super hard because you're in a, a relatively confined area. And the second thing is, uh, it's my, a lot of times my touchstone African writer, but Yajiasi, who I'm, I'm sure we talked about before we wrote home going, uh, the reason why the saltwater people thing resonated so much when I first read it is because in her book that I've talked about endlessly on this show, um, there's a scene early in the book where one of the characters, I, they were, I think they were Ghanaian, uh, walks into the ocean and just like has this like spiritual moment, like being in the water. And then the story progresses where that person's family is sold into slavery, makes it into the United States. And then uh, comes the, the, the end of the story, the final vignette character that you see returns to Ghana and walks into that water again and has this like reconnection with something that it's like on a, almost like a metaphysical level she understands that she doesn't understand and doesn't understand why this connection feels so profound. And I, as Josh was saying, talking about the idea of agency and like rediscovering all of these connections, like that feels so valuable. Mm. So something like this is, I mean, sounds extre- yeah. extremely cool, extremely important. Yeah. And just one other thing to say about the water. Um, you, you mentioning um, that scene in, in home going or homecoming, home going, home going, home going. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Going, coming. Um, it reminds me of, you know, I grew up in in the South where um, for many generations, black people were forbidden to swim. Yeah. And uh, last year at the Popolo Project, we produced a short film that um, talks about someone's experience moving from Texas to Oahu and learning to swim here because here it's part of, it's part of the culture. It's part of everyday life to be in the water. And um, one of the things that I found really interesting about our work in the Popolo Project and educating our larger community around the experience of blackness, not just in American context, but um, on, a, on a larger scale, is the ways that our bodies have been policed even to such a degree that someone would not be able to enjoy the ocean, that it would be an immediate site of trauma because they can't swim because of you know these metaphysical experience yeah. having that they're having around um, death and trafficking and dismemberment, all these things that happen in that place. And it is really interesting to think about um, just the ways that some of our experiences are also especially traumatic experiences are hidden from people. So I remember years ago, I was, um, I was hanging out with a friend who was from LA and he made this casual comment about how black people don't swim. He, he wasn't black. He was, um, Central American Latino guy. And he was saying, uh. yeah, and black people always wear jeans to the beach. And I had never heard that. And I was like, that's so bizarre because my family does swim, yeah. but my family swims also because we own our own land that has water on it. And there's, there's like a sense of um, even just your ecological relationships determine the kind of freedom that you're able to express. And I think one of the things that's interesting about um, those of us who are black in Hawaii is that we have a completely different ecology that we can relate to. Hawaii has a very different history from North America. And so yeah. there are all these interesting opportunities for us to be exploring those connections. And um, that's what that's what Saltwater People is about. And that's what the Popolos Project is about too. I had heard, I mean, I growing up, 
in Alabama, that stereotype is incredibly pervasive that black people can't swim. And I never knew that it was because they weren't allowed to swim. And now that you say it, I'm like, I can see a litany of reasons why white people would not let black people swim. Well, you can escape. And I remember my my dad, um, who was in the military, he was in the Marine Corps, and in the 70s, Jimmy Carter did this kind of tour of West Africa. And so my dad was part of the the gunboat that followed him along the coast. Oh, that's cool. Um, and so my dad, who was a photographer and a really interesting, engaged person, got to spend a lot of time in West Africa. I remember him talking about going to Gory Island um, and the, the door of no return and yeah. seeing kids swimming outside of it, um, seeing people swimming in the water. And it really hit him because so much of his growing up, even though he could swim, he knew that black people weren't supposed to be able to swim. And it was it was that kind of stereotype that you're like, well, maybe... I heard all kinds of stories as a kid, like, oh, maybe our, our muscles are more dense That's than other one. people. All sorts of like crazy stuff and all tying into like superhuman powers, right? right? Yeah. Like somehow we we put them in a position of inferiority, mm-hmm. but they also have these super mystical powers. Yeah. That well, we and can't that's weird. Yeah. Thing, but right? that justifies the position, right? right? Because if we were to let them have equal footing, right? Imagine what like, they would do to us. Game yeah. over. Yeah. 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 And then there are, you know, there are a lot of um, African, especially coastal West African spiritual practices that are related to water. Sure. Um, you know, the Ifa tradition of the Yoruba people has gone far and wide across the diaspora. And one of their principal um, deities, one of their orishas, is Yamaya, who is the they call her the mother of fishes, and she's she's the ocean, and she's a source of strength. So you can also imagine that both on a logistics level, like we don't want them to swim away, or we want them to be afraid of of the yeah. boundaries around them, but also having uh, an opportunity to delve into spiritual practices that would provide resilience. I mean, it's it's a very complex thing. So yeah, water is a it's. I mean, it seems kind of like a a very basic part of our lives, but it's also a really profound experience, especially that connects us across the distance. Well, you referenced earlier, like for now, at least salt water is not the resource that can be extracted. But as, as we continue to, you know, destroy the planet, water is becoming more and more critical. So this also in a, in a grand sweep of history is not also completely timely. Hmm. Um, but speaking of the grand sweep of history, what else are you up to? What else are you working on? Well, you know, at the Popola Project, we're really invested right now in creating a lot of new content. So even as I was just mentioning the short film that we did about swimming, um, we're thinking about new ways to kind of change how we see and think about blackness in the Pacific. So not only those of us of the African diaspora, but also black Pacific Islanders, people who are Melanesian in places like West Papua, um, dealing with the Indonesian occupation there, um, the Solomon Islands, all throughout the Pacific And those are places, especially right now, that are bearing the brunt of sea level rise and climate change. Um, And they're places that didn't contribute to the crisis that we're experiencing. And it is interesting that a lot of those places in the Western Pacific are not on the radar in the same way. Um, Even for us here in Hawaii, we have a distance with them Mm -hmm. that, um, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of complicated history of, of colonization and which European power did what, yeah. but there's also an aspect of these people having been marked as black. And so we're, um, we're, we're oblivious to their suffering and to their experience in a lot of ways. So at the Popolo project, we're, we're working on ways to draw, um, those of us who are connected to Africa and African diaspora, and in some ways have a bit of privilege because of our connection to the United States and the platforms that we have access to, to think about how our experience of being marked as black and being treated as black and policed as black and being disregarded as black people gives us an opportunity to also amplify the experience of these other people 
who, you know, pro- did come from Africa, but maybe yeah. 40,000 years ago, um, but look like us and are being treated like us in the same ways. That's fascinating. I remember the first time I saw photos of people from Papua New Guinea and being like, they're, they're black. Yeah. What? Yeah. Like I, yeah. Surprise. Yeah. yeah I know. <laughs> and the, the Melanesians weren't the only the, voyagers. Yeah. The Polynesia, Micronesia, Melanesia distinction was not, it's not, uh, in, in, in indigenous distinctions, that was just like yeah. Africa, just like Asia versus Europe. This right. is all white Western white geography map, yeah. map makers. Right? right. Exactly. I mean, in the, the Europe thing, Europe is basically a peninsula off a the peninsula side of, of Asia. Asia. Yeah. Like it's Asia, very clear. Asia West. Well, and you know? it's funny. If you th- I, I've, I've considered this a lot. Like, why is European colonization so indifferent or even um, aggressive toward like indigenous cultural traditions? And I think it's probably not an easy answer. Uh, but like one thing that I was thinking of, it's like just because Europe became this homogenized place where peoples were forced to assimilate under penalty of death and lost their indigenous culture. It's like we talk about like Josh and I were talking about this uh talking about how decisions reverberate into the future and like on a unrelated note like now all the populism we're seeing in the world is a reverberation of like reaganomics in the 80s and 30 years later we're seeing this but it's like imagine that you were an indigenous person in britain or the uk or something like the romans showed up and the romans showed Mm -hmm. up and robbed you of your traditions and it's like assuming that were to be true that like this all of this like anti-indigenous behavior is like a reverberation from behaviors that happened yeah, like the 1500 like, years ago. These yeah. friggin' Celts, man, they mm-hmm. will just... You know, totally, yeah. Yeah, yeah people, like, people learn that stuff. And, and I, I think we also have to be attentive to the ways that, that trauma actually does stay with us. You know, I, that's I might have talked to you at, yeah. guys about this. Like I, I recently was telling the story. So my surname is Glenn, which is a, which is a Gaelic word. Um, my, my name comes from ancestors of mine that came from Ulster who were moved by the British from Scotland to Northern Ireland and they're Protestants and it sucked. And then they moved to America and colonized the United States. Um, and you know, these are folks from Appalachia. They're still relatively poor. Um, and we're same region, you and I, yes, we are. Yeah, I'm definitely. So my, my family's from that part of my family's from Western Virginia. Mine's from Um, North Carolina, like around in the same kind of same area. Yeah. Yeah, Any Glenn that you meet is usually from Appalachia. John Glenn, Ohio. Yeah. By way of Ulsters. I mean, it's like ground zero. I've, I've met a few Glens even here on Oahu. I met a Glenn and he was from Kentucky. Um, so we're all, we're all from the same, same area. Wow. And our, was it us talking about last time? And maybe this is just a wives tale, but when I grew up, I can't remember if we talked about this. Just like Kemi, wives approve this tale. <laughs> <laughs> when I, when I grew up, um, I know that feels, that feels strangely misogynistic. Now I haven't used that term in a tale. long yeah. time. Yeah. Old let me, spouse, <laughs> it's an old spouse's old tale. Old let me, let me, an old, an old matrimonial an, partner's tale. Potentially a cultural legend might be a better way to say it. Um, there was this, they were, they were talking about, you mentioned uh, how all the Glens are in Appalachia. And a lot of the reason for that is because people in Appalachia don't tend to move around. They just kind of get, they got there and then they just stayed there, right? Because factories opened up relatively quickly after that and they were able to make a good living for themselves. A lot of that's documented in Hillbilly Elegy by J.D. Mm-hmm. Vance, um, who seems like now a terrible person, but the book was actually insightful. Anywho, um, there is this... <laughs> There is this cultural legend. Terrible person, insightful book. It happens. Two things it, can be true. It, it happens. happens. There's quite a few of those. Um, the, the cultural legend was that 
people in certain regions of Appalachia, because there was so little movement, um, that certain people were still speaking dialects of English that were not far from Shakespearean. Oh yeah. Like sure. as recently as like the mid early 20th century. Yeah. And not, and not just in Appalachia. I mean, throughout, um, the South is really a fascinating, very culturally diverse region, which as a Southerner, I feel like I have to say that on every oh, public I know. I, format I, I that I can, way. because, um, I mean, for lots of reasons, I and mean, I'll maybe go into some of them, but there, uh, you know, the South was where America, the concept that we have of America really started. A lot of the things that we think about as foundational to American culture started there. But at the same time, there are lots of communities that are pretty isolated. Mm -hmm. And, you know, from linguistics, we know that when people don't move around, um, there's a founder's effect. We have this in biology as well, where wherever they came from, um, mm -hmm. they're probably, they're, they're going to develop and change in some ways, but they're going to start with the tools that they had. Yeah. And so there are places all throughout the South that still have, I mean, they're, they're fewer now, um, but even when my parents were kids in North Carolina, there are, there are places where people were speaking very uh, specifically localized dialects um, that sounded very much like people spoke in England, Southern England in the 1580s. Makes sense. Um, it's, it's so bizarre, but it's fascinating. Yeah. I yeah. mean, in sociology, we called it cultural and ethnic enclaves where yeah, people right. prefer to be around people mm -hmm. who they are similar to. Yeah. And so that you get situations where you just have this, I don't want to use this in a negative connotation, like an inbreeding effect, basically. It's like the group just sort of mixes with the group over and over again. No, and that's the story of human history. That's yeah. how we have tribes and cultures and languages is that you hang out with people that you can understand on whatever level, whether it's linguistically mm -hmm. or you think that they look nice or you like the same kind of clothes, you know, that's what you happens. You want to kill the same type of people. Yeah, you want to yeah, kill man. the same type of people, eat the same animals, yeah. not eat the other animals, yeah. Do you think uh, then talking about the story of human history and maybe this is metaphysical or not metaphysical, but too meta, of a question but given all of that being true uh do you think that we're endlessly doomed to repeat that cycle over and over or do you think that we've somehow now achieved a level of cultural sophistication that we can consciously disregard it and become something better that's a good question um that is very meta i think you know, I think that the evidence that we have of how humans develop and how culture changes um, shows us that there's always two things happening. There's always convergence and divergence. Mm. People find people like them who are of like mind or have similar aspirations and values. They go together as long as they can and then they diverge and that happens all the time. That's I think that's the only thing that, that we can say that's true. And I think if you look at human history and even our contemporary society through that lens, you see that all the time. It's like cyclical, right? Yeah. So we have, you know, the internet brought a lot of people together and you're like, wow, I'm such a weirdo about this one thing, but I found all these people around the world that love this thing too. And they converge. And the Nazis are back. And then the Nazis are back, right? <laughs> so it's it's those those kinds of things are happening all the time. And I, I take a more kind of like, I don't, I don't want to be cynical, but yeah. I, I want to be Realist. realistic yeah. about humanity. And humanity is both wonderful and altruistic and horrible and, and terrible brutal. and scary. Um, so I think both of those things are happening it's, all the time. It's a, you mentioned, I, I thought it was, I don't know why it seems so insightful, but people stick together as long as they can and then they diverge. And what I what I see is like a convergence right now in terms of like the tribalism is, and maybe this portends good things, is that we do have our micro tribes, right? And I, what I, one thing I've noticed growing up in a very segregated area 
is that people will always find the thing that separates them from the group and then try to find other people. So it's like, it's like infinitely dividing, right? Where you can be like, well, I'm in this group of people who all have the same relative background as me, the same religious beliefs, the same skin tone, the same this, that, but they're all brown haired and I'm blonde haired and you feel like an outsider. And then you want to find people Mm -hmm. who have all the same things, but they also have blonde hair. And then it sort of creates a natural divergence, like Mm -hmm. you're saying, but um, from like the, a more macro perspective, like maybe then the idea of like creating a bigger tribe, if that's the ultimate goal, the tribe of humanity, as it were, like we do now in our country have two very big tribes. We have the, the left and the right. And before it's like, maybe we were more fragmented. And so maybe in some weird way, the, the fractiousness of what we have, if it doesn't lead us to ruin or people prioritize different things to organize themselves around. Mm -hmm. And it used to be like before you had 24 seven opinions blown at you all the time. People didn't care about politics. that much. It's just didn't define their lives. And Mm -hmm. you know, people, as we got society gets more less religious, you find other ways to find meaning. Well, like I saw, I saw that for the first time, I think it was 2017 or 2018 for the first time, a person uh, like older people were saying that they'd rather their kids bring home somebody of a different race than a different political affiliation. Mm. That was the first time in history in recorded history that, yeah. that or recorded, you know, yeah. been doing that yeah. survey that that's happened. Yeah. And it's like, in some ways that's depressing and uh, deeply concerning, but in other ways it's like, well, we've now created, we've, uh, we've united a bunch of smaller tribes into like two really big tribes. Right. And so maybe that's like, yeah Net it's better positive? I think, yeah, it's better to not you know if you're gonna if you're gonna pick something inclusion exclusion it's better to not be an immutable characteristic it's better to be something that people can, can well, control but then by that same metric you stick together as long as you can and then you look within those two big tribes yeah. and there are all sorts of divergences happening yeah. all the time you have the right but then you have the nazis and then you have the mitt romneys mm-hmm. and then it's like on the left you have like you know you have the joe biden's and you have the bernie sanders's and then you have the jill stein it's like I don't know. It's it's very interesting. And the way that people organize themselves to me is always yeah, been fascinating. I think it's super fascinating. I think part of it too, though, is framing, you know, and um, the, the comment about people wanting to have their kids marry someone of a similar political orientation versus not caring as much about race. It's interesting because race is another really great example of how we, it's about our framing. So it's not that people are actually the same or mm-hmm. that race is a real thing. It's a, we know it's a social construct, but it's how much value and energy we, we continue to give yeah. to it. And I think the same thing happens on the political scale. So we have these concepts of left and right, but I mean, even within those, those big divisions, those big tribes, um, there's a lot of heterogeneity in people's beliefs yeah. and priorities and all kinds of things. And it's interesting that we still we still want those big boxes to be like yeah. left and right. I don't know if it makes sense to still have Nazis as part of the right if we also <laughs> are including like yeah. Mitt Romney or you know like are 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 they ideologically similar enough to say that they're in the same bucket? In the same way that like you know Hillary Clinton and Jill Stein are on the left. Is that yeah. actually the right bucket, or yeah. do we need to have like some some other buckets? Maybe they're. Yeah there are gradations that we could, we could explore. And I think race is a really good one because, um, I was just talking to, um, a a colleague, uh, somebody who was, um, a guy from the New York times actually, who was here doing a story on race in Hawaii and And podcasts, uh, maybe podcasts. Yeah. Cause if he wants to talk about that, (laughs) I'll definitely send him this podcast. Um, but we were talking about, um, 
he was really interested in this research that's come out of UH uh, Manoa. There's a wonderful researcher in psychology, uh, Kristen Pauker, who's doing research. She has a lab that focuses on mixed race experience. And she's published a couple of recent papers that maybe your podcast listeners would like to take a look at. But uh, this this uh, writer came out to Hawaii because he couldn't really understand her conclusions. And he was really interested in exploring what race means here. A couple of her conclusions, and I don't want to I don't want to summarize her paper too much because there's a lot of complex and interesting work that goes into it. But um, do it anyway. Give us a, a, I'll just I'll we, just say like, have the disclaimer. Now that we have the disclaimer. <laughs> feel free to the, the high level um, yeah. takeaway is that because Hawaii has a lot of mixed race people, yeah. um, for lots of us, our assumptions about race and kind of intrinsic values associated with phenotype in particular don't stick in the same way that they do in North America. And her her conclusion has been that. Um, having just so much variation mm. makes it hard for us to to transport our racialized ideas to Hawaii, yeah. especially for those of us who come from elsewhere. Yeah. Um, and so he was he was here and asking me about my experience, and it is interesting because um, you know I'm I'm a black person uh, from a very diverse genealogy in the South or yeah. in North America. It's very clear that I'm black. Right. Uh, I have some African ancestry and that's all that matters. Right. That's what makes me one black. Drop, one drop right. rule. Like, yeah. I don't think anyone thinks I look like I'm from, you know, someplace in sub-Saharan Africa, Ulster. right? I don't look like I'm from Ulster. I don't look like my family's from Southern China or, yeah. you know, all the other places that they are, I guess. But all that matters is that I, I obviously have some African ancestry. But in Hawaii, my experience is very different because there are lots of other kinds of brown people here. And um, I've had people tell me that I didn't look like I was black because I'm not the the darkest black person they've ever seen. Right. (laughs) They're like, no, we've seen black people. They look like Michael Jordan and they look like this person look like this person, even though people have exposure to Beyonce and the range of things. Right. Um, there's still these these kinds of um, anchor concepts, sure. these like idealized concepts that people have around those. Um, but they're very porous. And when confronted with someone who is still part of that group but not conforming to all the expectations, people have a hard time with it. And I think that's, again, it's the convergence and divergence thing. People, humans are category forming pattern forming spe- species you know like we yeah. love to do that it we helps love to our be brains like, make sense yeah. of the world quicker. we love to do it but yeah. we're always wrong like yeah. we're almost always wrong and it's interesting that that's something that our species has evolved to do it serves us in some ways but it also really sets us up in a lot of ways too um half this podcast is us talking about our personal failings and so i'll i'll do one now um <laughs> sure so when you were talking about existing as a black person in Hawaii and uh, how racialized experiences don't transport. Um, I remember I was having this thought this week because uh, my wife was at the airport and our car needed a jump and um, she called AAA. And I was trying to remember the last time we called AAA and it was my, I had a flat tire and I called him and the guy comes out and changed the tire for you. It's great service. But the guy that came out when I was the last time I called was several years ago. Um, and he was uh, a young black guy and um, he was more dark, like what these people would have considered like the Michael Jordan, you know, like, Oh, you're, you're a real black person or whatever. Authentic. And yeah. Yeah. And so um, not that that has any bearing, but just since you brought it up. um, So I remember he got there and I had, I'm thinking about this as I'm driving to the airport to go pick her up. And um, I was remembering him getting there and me having all of these thoughts about who he probably was and what he probably felt and where he was probably from 
and because um, you know he gets out of the car and your brain just yeah makes all those patterned associations mm-hmm. especially when you're from alabama right mm-hmm. um and he didn't conform to any of it because he turns out he wasn't a transplant he'd been born here his family had lived here for couple of generations and Mm -hmm. he like went to high school you know wherever Kalani or something like that and he was just doing this before he went off to school in the fall and I remember in the in that moment when it first happened I remember being like huh but then now looking back on it I was having that same realization this week is like I was transporting notions of racialized experiences and imbuing them on this young man um for no other reason other than to help my own self make sense of the world. And it's, that was even after I considered myself probably more on like the politically liberal spectrum or politically liberal on the spectrum. It's, it's astounding to think like all of the blind spots we have, even when we're trying to yeah. not have them, even when well, we're think, trying to I, see, I you think know, to your point about like, most people, most I think most people, the majority of people are not going through the world with with malice in their hearts. No, it's just a well, lack of a lack of understanding, which yeah. leads to awkward situations. Well, and, and I think the the broader point is that um, that that experience, though, I think is is particularized, or maybe I'm overblowing it, but I feel like it's particularized to Black people in the United States. I mean, you you do you do sort of guess about where people are from in other contexts whenever they have certain cultural or phenotypical mm-hmm. characteristics, but I think black people get it the most. And it's something that I, I have a frame of reference for mm-hmm. because I grew up in the place where we made all of those yeah. stereotypes. I think I think that black people get in a very particular way. I also, um, you know, my, my family is also American Indian. Yeah. And I think American Indians get oh, it in a very true. particular yeah. way. And it, it's a different way from black people, but man i mean just the number of people who say things like they're like surprised that they laugh and smile because all the images that they see of indians are people being stone-faced incredibly serious or like one of the i was just having a conversation with a dear friend of mine who lives in wyoming yeah and we were talking about how um you know my my indian family is in north carolina so they have southern accents yeah and people are like wow it's so weird to see these like they look like Mexicans, but That's they have right. Southern accents. And right. they're like, whoa, there's like so much going on right, right they there. Agree, they <laughs> shake your they're hand. not all from the plane, you know, like yeah. the they don't go, they're, they're not, not all from the plains. Yeah. And yeah. and that there's diversity even uh, among native people, yeah. native North Americans, there's like people with curly hair and yeah. that doesn't necessarily mean they're mixed. And there's just a lot. And I think it comes back to what we've been talking about. It's the, it's the frames that we have. It's the stories that we tell. It's yeah. the, um, the willingness to say like, this is a story that I, tell myself this may not be the only story of this person's experience um and it's it's hard because the world is very it's a rich our world and universe is extremely rich there's a lot going on even in this room there's probably like microorganisms we can't see there's all kinds of stuff but i sterilized it before we started recording (laughs) we've trained our brains to focus on the things that we can comprehend and the stories that we can kind of grok in a way that allows us to move through the world because otherwise it would be sensory overload yeah and I think where the intervention can happen is understanding that the stories that we tell about each other keep us from actually experiencing some of the richness. That's well, true. Yeah, and, you, you can't like get past the, the preconceived notion. And just that, yeah, I think that's maybe how I was going to say it too. Basically, like you tell yourself the story, but you need to be prepared to be wrong, yeah. right? It's like right. maybe you're right 60% mm-hmm. of the time, but like be understand that 40% of the time you, you're going to be wrong and yeah. you should be gracious in that and yeah. try to understand and celebrate that difference rather than like 
getting angry that not everybody fits into your box. Right. And I, I think, you know, coming from an experience as, as a person who's multiply marginalized in in Western society, I think we get a lot of practice in doing that. You know, like we know that the stories that are told about us are not it and are not complete and are not representative of our humanity. So we do often, um, from, you know, various identity points have practice saying like, that's not really it. Um, and I think that that's something that, especially now with the way that the, the internet works, the way we have access to media, producing media like like this podcast, um, we have opportunities to to amplify that experience and to share it with people and say like, you know, this is not what, this is not necessarily what's going on. Yeah. These are other ways to think about it. But I think for many of us over generations, we've been actually deeply engaged in the practice of trying to flip these stories. Yeah. And that's part of what we're doing with the Popolo Project and trying to get folks in Hawaii who also understand that Hawaii is not necessarily represented as itself in the world yeah. through media to understand that um, if you're... God, that's so true. If you're expecting yeah. me to be a certain way. I had somebody years ago who was quoting a Tyler Perry Medea movie to me, which I hadn't uh, seen, uh, but they knew I was a black Southerner and they were like using this phrase. And I was like, I have no, why are you saying that? And they were like, yeah. Oh, I, this is what your people say. And you your have people, you have fans and hats and oh. church and all these things. Uh, and it's, yeah, I'm not saying that's not your church hat to the podcast. <laughs> okay, I do have on. a church hat though. Um, but <laughs> they make it's, sense. It's not, it's not that that is not part of the experience, yeah. the aggregate experience of blackness or even Southern blackness, yeah. but it means that, you know, I'm here in Hawaii, so you should imagine that I might have more in common with you yeah. being here in Hawaii than with yeah. these other people. It doesn't mean that I have nothing in common with them, but the idea that the way for you to engage with me is through this other thing that you saw yeah. amplified by Hollywood yeah. um, is a big problem. And I think people in Hawaii are aware and sensitive to that because we know that the the films and, and TV yeah. shows that are based here are not representative well, I, of our experience. I have, I have an uncle, an uncle who I, who I love dearly uh, from the, from the East coast, from, I know K- from Poughkeepsie, New York mm. and his, his favorite thing in the world. And so like, we finally convinced him like you please, for the love of God, do not do this. His favorite thing was to try to speak Hawaiian. Oh no. Yeah. Oh, I, and, yeah. So, <laughs> so I know your story, your stories remind me of two things specifically, uh, this idea of seeing in, trying to understand the world through the frames we think we understand. Uh, it's really common to see, um, especially among among white people trying to be PC and progressive, referring to black people from everywhere as African-American. Know, and actually so saying like, weird. I'm, like, I'm from Britain? Or well, like, and even I'm a lot the, of, a lot of us who are black Americans yeah. don't use that phrase for ourselves, yeah. Yeah. which is super weird. Like I've yeah. had people be like, no, you're African-American. You're African-American. I'm like, you're no. And then, no, uh, a, subset, yeah. a subset of that and, and a similar dynamic. Uh, well, you know, Barack Obama, that's not the African-American experience. Right, sure. Like, well, he's American and he's African. So why is that not, you know what I mean? So it's, it's, yeah, it's, and it's, I we mean, can't even, burst through these limiting yeah. boxes that we've all, that not, and not again, mostly not for malice, for mm-hmm. pure ignorance, for p- ignorance, obviously, but for yeah. an attempt to organize it's you know, hard. To make sense of the crazy world we live in. It's hard too, especially when you think of the way our institutions engage us in creating these boxes. So, yeah. like school. Yeah. <laughs> I grew up in the South, as I keep saying, and I uh, I went to a public school where we had Confederate Heritage Month in April, yeah. and we had Lee we Jackson celebrated King Day. Robert E. Lee Day instead yeah, of Martin Luther Jack- King Day. Yeah, we had Lee We we tacked on Martin Luther King, but it was Lee Jackson King Day. Yep. The entirety of my schooling, and I was I was in classrooms where I was taught to to support the cause, you know, 
me, a little black kid, indigenous it ancestry. Rights. It wasn't you know? personal. And it and sometimes it sometimes my teachers would say, I mean, very paternalistic things like, yeah. you know, if it weren't for slavery, your family would still be in Africa. And lucky they're poor you. in Africa. Oh. They're starving in Africa. You guys You're really lucky. dodged a bullet. <laughs> you know? Um, I'm I'm also a, You literally a, had a teacher say that. Yeah. Miss Mrs. Braddy in fourth grade. If Shout she's out listening. to Mrs. Braddy. <laughs> yeah. No no comment. That was her name. Hope she's dead I remember now. fourth fourth, <laughs> fourth grade was, you know, just like here in Hawaii, that's when you start getting like Hawaiiana yeah, classes and yeah. stuff. So fourth grade was when we had Virginia history. You're what, we did Alabama fourth grade, history you were what, like eleven, ten, eleven? Like ten yeah, yeah. nine, ten. Um, but I remember that was the first time that my schooling addressed slavery. Yeah. And I was in I mentioned this last time I was on here that I was the first generation post segregation. Um, yeah. So most of all of our parents went to segregated schools and all of our teachers, most of them started teaching in segregated schools. So Jeez. it was a very, I don't know if awkward is the word. It was like growing pains. It was a traumatic experience yeah. to be in a space like that where um, I remember my the same teacher in fourth grade teaching us about the Nat Turner rebellion, oh, yeah. which happened just what down the bad, road from us. Man. And she spent like three days on yeah, it. And I remember it was how like brutal they were. My I went home to my parents and they were like, well, you know, slavery was kind of terrible too. You know, they they were trying to kind of I think help me not be as reactionary yeah. in my response to her because i had learned enough about slavery like i had gone to places where my family had been enslaved yeah. where they were buried in unmarked graves i knew in the community where i lived um there was a you know several still existing plantations um around and you would see these big houses that were celebrated as as historic sites and then there'd be like a little corner someplace where all the slave quarters had been knocked down yeah. a lot of that happened after the war yeah people didn't want to acknowledge it anymore and so it was really the, these grandiose mansions and very little attention to the humans that that made them and kept them running. Um, it's funny you mentioned I by chance this week I was reading about Sally Hemings, mm. um, which for those of you listening was uh, the slave that Thomas Jefferson arguably uh, was courting slash raping. Uh, depends on what perspective you're looking at it from. I tend to go with raping, uh, but he was like this, or she was this. They call her like one of the founding mothers now because um, she was so pivotal in like Jefferson's life, I guess, and helping shape the country, whether we realize it or not. And whenever um, Monticello was sold because Jefferson died broke, uh, they just, yeah, they knocked down like all the slave quarters. They like immediately renovated the room that she lived in and turned it into something else. And it was yeah. just that was it well i grew up with an, a number of her descendants oh, really? um, and in the 80s and 90s they they were all well aware that they were descendants of thomas jefferson um and many of them some of them had uh become free people through the generations it, um, it, he it said on the article i was reading that he freed all of her children mm -hmm. and yeah. never her yeah she she died yeah. i mean she was sort of freed like right before she died but yeah. Like, yeah. It's a, I mean, the Sally Hemings story, there's a, there's a lot of Virginia history that's pretty atrocious. Oh, um, yeah. but her story is a, is a really interesting one because people really want to rehabilitate Jefferson yeah. because he was this lofty philosopher and, and the, you know, the author of all these, these wonderful He started ideals. having sex with her at 14. Yeah. And she was also his wife's half sister. So oh. she was a product of, Oh, her, I did know of, that. Of yeah. her mother being her mo enslaved mother, um, being impregnated by, um, 
the person who claimed to own her. And Hemings, cognitive dissonance in American well, history. And, yeah. and then Hemings came from the fact that her mom was uh, a product of slave rape by an English sea captain mm-hmm. who I guess raped her on the middle passage is what, what it was sort of implying. Mm. And so it's like... Yeah, there's a lot of that, right? Yeah. So, and I mean, it's also interesting because the United States, um, in the way that they tried to regulate the slave trade also encouraged that kind of behavior, especially in places like the upper South, like in Virginia and North Carolina, where, um, you know, for a long time, the, the, the plantation holdings there were not very big. So they were mostly small farms. People have a few enslaved people working on their farms, but in order to continue to produce them, there was, I mean, we know this as well documented. There's a lot of rape going on in my own family history. You know, I'm definitely a product of that. Um, and yeah, the Sally Hemming story was, was very interesting because it was part of the ambient conversations around race when I was growing up, yeah. where there were kids in my, my elementary school class who were in Miss Braddy's class actually with me in fourth grade who um, knew that they were descendants of Thomas Jeff- Jefferson. They knew that. that was, they had all the oral history. Yeah, they had all the oral history. They had Bibles, family Bibles. They knew it. They would gather as a family. They um, had family reunions. And I remember my teachers telling these children like, no. There's no way. There's was, absolutely no that way. That was the dominant narrative. Sally Hemings was a liar. Your great, 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 great grandmother. All these things. Thomas Jefferson was a good person. He would never have sex with a black, a black person. person. Was the it story. Wasn't, it, it wasn't, wasn't like he, would he wouldn't rape, rape a slave. Right. He wouldn't rape <laughs> yeah. a slave. It was like he, he wouldn't have sex with a black person. Sully himself. Right. Um, and But I remember being in high Goodness school gracious. when uh, the DNA tests started happening. And yeah. all these kids that I grew up with um, were getting their DNA tested. And they were all descendants of Thomas Jefferson. Well, and uh, and then there was a, a pretty um, blockbuster book that came out in the early 90s, mm-hmm. I think. And the, the name of the book escapes me right now. Um, but it was basically making the case for it. And then I think shortly after the DNA test started, that's how I got on the whole rabbit hole. The, yeah. the woman who wrote it. Is that Annette Gordon-Reed? Annette Gordon-Reed. Shout there out to her. Go. I took a J-term class with her at Richardson. No, you yeah. did oh, wow. It was basically. That's so cool. Yeah. She's, she's, in, she's. Yeah, she's about as legit as it I, gets. Like, so I read she's a tweet such, from, she's a, from she's incredible her. badass. She's a Harvard law professor, yeah. I believe now, and she was the one that wrote law, that book. law and history. Yeah, and she cool. she is like the phenomenally impressive. She is the 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 OG of Sally Hemings Thomas Jefferson scholarship. Well, uh, I could talk literally all day about that. <laughs> um, two things before we let you go because you've we've I, I'm serious. I could we could make this a nine hour podcast yeah. and I don't think I would cover everything I want to cover. You were saying that you were also speaking of Annette Gordon Reed. You were also at a, a well-known uh, school called Harvard in the last few months. Will you tell us what you were doing there? Yeah. Just a couple of weeks ago, I was fortunate to be invited to a seminar at the Radcliffe Institute at Harvard. Um, the Radcliffe Institute does a lot of interesting work. Um, they put on art exhibits. They host a lot of interesting conversations. But one of the things they do is they create space for scholars to just explore ideas that are important for the academy and for the world. And um, I was l- lucky enough to be invited by two uh, wonderful kind of eminent scholars in Caribbean history, um, Keto Swan, who's at Howard University, as I mentioned a little while ago, and Glenn Chambers, who's at Michigan State University, for a seminar on the Black Pacific, thinking about connections between the African diaspora, especially political connections, and Oceania. And there's a lot of interesting histories and stories there that I think have been buried. Um, and uh, we were a, a group of a small group of ten, kind of thinking through 
what does it mean for Atlantic people to be approaching the Pacific in this way, mm. bringing some of their racialized ideas about how things work? What does it mean for Oceania to be looking to Africa, especially around decolonization and, um, and kind of the cultural work that goes into building power and a sense of self? Um, and so it was, it was fascinating. I got to sit with some really brilliant scholars who are doing work far different from my own, but also able to share with them a little bit about what we're doing in the Popolo project and how we're positioning ourselves as, 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 uh, inhabitants of a black pacific literally everything you say sounds so cool so so for our for our listeners who can't bear to go another 10 months without hearing from you <laughs> where can people go if they want to like stay in tune with what you're doing do you have like people are you guys putting out like updates newsletters social media like how can people stay in touch and follow the dr Kemi glenn journey it's yeah well it's not just my journey it's it's the community's it's journey your, it's too. your journey yeah. as, as far See, as far, like you would say that, yeah, that, so cool yeah, she Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Kimmy Gunn is the community, in our opinion. But sorry, please continue. <laughs> no, the community is the community. I have to be adamant about that. But we are on social media. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram. Um, we don't really have enough of a Twitter presence, but we're kind of around there. Maybe this summer we'll step that up. Um, our website is a wonderful source for um, our recent talk stories. Some of our media content is coming out there in the next few weeks. Um, it's also the place you can sign up for our newsletter. We do send out periodical and what was that website one more time it's the popoloproject.org so t-h-e-p-o-p-o-l-o-p-r-o-j-e-c-t dot o-r-g awesome it doesn't sound like travails at all it sounds like you really enjoy what you're doing (laughs) and and it's just such a joy to speak with you like every time it's so cool oh you're so kind you could just be i would just listen to you talk about whatever wow literally whatever yeah that's a high high praise i appreciate it last key question will you stick around for a little Shout out segment with us? Sure. Perfect. All right, back, back in, a in a moment. Blue Hawaii Podcast. Blue Hawaii. Shout outs. Shout out. No, shout out number one. Ilani's. Noko Oi. Noko Oi. Shane Sasaki picked in the third round of the Major League Baseball draft. Ilani outfielder Shane Sasaki, a first team Honolulu star advertiser, all state selection. What if this guy, what if he got selected in the third round and was like not Honolulu star advertiser? All state, <laughs> just like, like oh, no. honorable mention. Like, I like, didn't play baseball. Yeah, like, he wasn't even that good. It's like the USC crew thing. Like, yeah, <laughs> he's going to the Tampa Bay Rays in the third round. I hope uh, Shane, I'm rooting for you, buddy. You know uh, what? Wait until you wait, play wait, the Red wait, Sox. Wait, wait, wait. Hold on, Hawaii. Our connection just got a little deeper. Yeah. Do you know where the Tampa Bay Rays single A affiliate is? You know who they are? Montgomery, Alabama. The Montgomery Biscuits. Montgomery Biscuits. The Montgomery Biscuits yeah. minor league right, baseball Shane, team. Shane, if you have to do a stint at the Montgomery Yo, Biscuits. Yo, you should get in touch. I can tell them all the restaurants yep, to go eat perfect. at. There's a lot of good ones. Uh, uh, also, the Backstreet Boys. Backstreet Boys. Coming to... Backstreet's the, back, all right. The Blaisdell Arena in November. Everybody, yeah. Rock your body, yeah. Everybody, yeah. Rock <laughs> that was your body, the most- right. Most monotone way Backstreet's ever. back all right yeah am i original yeah am i am i sexual yeah am i the only one yeah are you ready am i everything you need are you gonna rock your body now yeah yeah shout out to nba legend paul pierce aka the truth because oh, the, the truth, truth finally fi- came out finally came out about his famous injury all slash wheelchair sta- exit slash emotional return or all over the boston garden floor is in the 2008 finals against the lakers uh and the truth was what he had, he had to go to the bathroom <laughs> Also, shout out Paul Pierce. Uh, he predicted, I think, the Raptors in six. It might and come true. It, I mean, we're about to be the Raptors in five if they win this yeah. next one. But Golden State's going to take one more, and Raptors probably going to win in six. Fun fact, the only two players to ever score 47-plus points in an NBA Finals loss were born in the same Akron, Ohio hospital, 39 months apart. Their names are LeBron James and Stephen Curry. I thought you were going to say Paul Pierce. I was like, if Paul Pierce is only three years older than LeBron... <laughs> 
That's mind blowing. And last shout out from us before we turn back to Akemi. This is no uh, no secret to any of us. Honolulu unless you're homeless. has been named the best small city in America. Uh, that's because, that's because the, uh, this, according based to the on several criteria, according to the destination branding firm, this should be a, a AKA alarm. according to somebody who wanted some free publicity. Red flag right here. Residence consultancy. Uh, the ranking was based on several criteria, including crime rates. We are good with crime rates. Uh, air quality. We do good. have good air quality. Housing affordability. Hmm. Uh, Must not avoid know. this right. Cultural diversity. Yeah, we got a lot of that. Yeah. Uh, Honolulu was also ranked number one in the quote neighborhoods and parks and two outdoors of course we're gonna win outdoors yeah of course we're going so parks I've, i do i will say i think parks here are a way bigger deal than parks ever were when i was living down south like nobody spent time in parks probably because it was so damn hot all the yeah. time <laughs> you just you're like i can't afford to go to the park and sweat my head off what's what's your take kim obviously housing affordability is a complete joke so that must not have been weighed very strongly on the list but yeah <laughs> neighborhood outdoors parks you you concur yeah i mean i spend a lot of time in kapilani park actually Same. i'm probably there almost every day for something oh, in some, that some is a form lot of time. like i'm running or meeting someone there mm. i'm there to read or take my laptop sometimes um i am fortunate to live in palolo valley which is mm, beautiful yeah. and also very heavily populated but we have we have accessible parks there as well it's very walkable awesome. so, i was very yeah. surprised when i moved here because down south we have so much land that like i was surprised because okay i got i got to hawaii and it was close to summer and people were playing softball in the park and there was no fields there's like a backstop and people yeah. were just playing and i'm like what this must be like where the where the poor people play softball yeah. because down south like you have a you have to just go to a baseball park you go to a softball park mm -hmm. they're everywhere yeah like you can't avoid them yeah. and here we have the cool thing is we have multiple uses for our shared community yeah. space. The outfield also just happens to be the park. Yeah, yeah, it's it's really cool. It's cool how we use our space, and yeah. it's like interesting. Like necessity is the mother of invention, and it's weird how we've or it's not weird. It's cool how we've innovated the way that we consider public spaces. I think no. it's neat. And I think about like I moved here from New York City, yeah. which is a another island group of islands. Mm -hmm. Um, that you know has limited land and I think about how people use public space there too um, especially in the summer because you know sure. most of Brutal. us were living in like converted tenement buildings Whoa. super hot yeah. but people were using public spaces it was a place to run into people you knew learn play chess I mean you've all seen the movies right people yeah. in the park do you have any shout outs you'd like to share with our listeners I don't um, yeah I just want to invite everybody to come check us out at Saltwater People um, the lineup is really great and I think people will have a wonderful time there and that is going to be June 23rd that's Sunday that's a Sunday it's a school night mm -hmm. June but we 23rd. start early we start yep. at 4 that's a good thing yeah. it's a Sunday so you can get your day drinking in yes. at the Hyatt Centric Waikiki <laughs> Uber home oh don't Uber don't Uber Uber is the worst Lyft home yeah. uh, or even take the bus yeah. And if you do park, we have $5 flat rate parking that's in the building, which is... I see that good. it says the, the price is 15 to $20. Mm -hmm. Is this like based on what you can spend or is it's, it... It's 15 um, until the week before the show. Oh, so okay. We're, so 15 oh. for like pre-sale. Yeah, pre-sale. Okay. Yeah. okay. Now, okay, I mean, when you last joined us, uh, we know last time we had a restaurant rack from you. Did you do the mm -hmm. Desert Island, the Desert Island game? Yeah, she said that she does not so. eat out much. I don't eat yeah, out so much. You, your, yeah. your, your nominee was a Cocoa Supermarket, I think, right? It was, um, I think it was Ma'o CSA and local IA. Uh, yes. okay. Even guys. better. Yeah. So you're on a uh, saltwater people, appropriate okay. thing. You've been shipwrecked okay. on a desert island. Mm. And somehow you were able to stock up provisions. You were able to bring one book, one movie, and one album. What do you bring? Hmm. That's a good one. Um, 
I'm just going to say this because it's top of mind and I recently reread it. Um, the Wizard of the Crow is the book that I would read because I've read it so many times. It's by Ngugi Wationgo. And if you don't know him, he's a he's a wonderful Kenyan writer. He's won lots of awards. And for many years, he was writing in English and uh, was celebrated. But he, in the 70s and 80s, uh, kind of rethought his position. He's a Kikuyu person. And he was like, why am I writing in English? It's my second language. So now he writes all of his novels in Kikuyu and then translates them himself. Dang. So the translation is really rich and his writing is really lovely. That's killer. And I don't remember when The Wizard of the Crow came out. It's been more than 10 years now, but I've read it several times. And every fiction? time it's fiction. Yeah, it's really fun. So I would read that. I've read it several times. I think uh, I is it on Kindle? Because I'm going to download it tonight. It might be. I don't know. I have a I have a hard copy of it, but yeah. Okay. So okay. it was a book and then... A movie and an album. A movie. Man, that's a good one. <laughs> I'm going to say two movies that I think will show the, the span of my, um, my interest and hopefully my personality. Okay. Uh, recently, I, <laughs> with friends who had never seen it before, watched The Last Dragon. And oh. I found it to be very amusing. Have you guys seen that? The I Last Dragon? Yeah. Yeah. Not. It's like a very campy, weird movie that has martial yeah. arts and all kinds of Nothing stuff in it. Okay. No, but it's, it's, um, I think it's an interesting it's piece such of an original pick. Social okay. commentary. Yeah. Uh, but I'm having two. So, and yeah. I think the other one that I would watch is Daughters of the Dust, um, which is a wonderful film made in the 90s by Julie Dash that takes place on the sea islands, I think off the coast of Georgia at the turn of the 20th century. Awesome. And it's also a really rich, like culturally rich and cinema, you know, the cinematography is really amazing. And if you've seen Beyonce's Lemonade, um, it was deeply inspired by that film. Hmm. So it's one you can watch over and over. And then one album. One album. Man, that's really hard. So the cheat Just here, one. we can we can we can give you the, the pro tip. Don't don't do it. She's a smart woman. She doesn't need a cheat. <laughs> I want to cheat. What's so the cheat? you can you can also get out of jail free here is you say your favorite band's greatest hits compilation. Oh, well that yeah, that would be get out of free. You know, and I am just saying this because I'm thinking on my feet right now, but yesterday was Prince's birthday. Mm. He would have been sixty one. R.I.P. And um, I grew up listening to him as from small kid all the way until his passing. So I think I yeah. would. I don't know if it's his greatest hits. I don't know if it's Purple Rain, but oh, something um, Prince. Yeah, something. We're gathered Prince. on this shipwrecked <laughs> on this desert island to get through this thing called life. Right. Exactly. I like it. Perfect. Well, uh, Akemi. Yeah. Thank, thank you. you. As always, it's an absolute thrill yeah, and pleasure. Mahalo. And joy thank you so much for having you. me, folks. Any, any last words yeah. of wisdom? Anything you'd like to share with our audience? Just keep checking this out. Support these guys at Blue Hawaii Podcast. Oh, um, you're doing great things for the community. We're and trying. it's important to have more spaces like this to you share our stories. You, you flatter so, us. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, Akemi Glenn, get Doctor. in touch. Akemi Glenn. Doctor. Akemi. Dr. Glenn, comma, Akemi. <laughs> get in touch with us. Uh, let us know what you think. Get in touch with her. Uh, find the Propolo Project and all their various social media capacities. Uh, like, tag, share the episode. That's the best way if you want to help support other than just donating money and going to the events. Um, and let's get the name out there. Saltwater people on the 23rd Sunday. You said, uh, I believe day party was yes. the way you described yes, it. Yes. Day okay. party. Y'all. That's good. We have the perfect outro music. That's right. All right. Uh, we'll talk to y'all next week. Bye. Podcast. Day party at my crib. You invited. You invited. Day party at my crib. Bring a lighter. Yeah. <laughs> Don't be going down nobody deep end. You can't swim. Yeah, you gon' need work, yeah. You gon' need work, yeah. I'm in and out of the 
get the point in the bitch. You, 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 yeah. They party at my crib, you invited. They party at my crib, bring a lighter. BBQ, no key coos, no cheap shoes. Good seafood, good beach food. Should teach school, shit been cool. Could thieves, your unequal, illegal. I go to Gucci to mingle. Got them high nose like a singer. Uh, I'm making left hit the blink. You blow all the AP. Both of them call 80 piece. Meal time, y'all can barely eat. I'm wired up, I can barely sleep. Told y'all, nigga, most y'all, nigga, showed y'all, nigga, coach y'all, nigga, broke y'all, nigga, smoked y'all, nigga, choked y'all, nigga, poked y'all women. Had them chickens covered like Tabasco. Bells of weed down the street from the pastor. Got a good rods filled up with Caspers. Me and my skill live happily ever after. Yeah, you gon' need work. 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 Yeah, I'm in and out of the bill. Yeah, I got a profit to get. Woo, I get to looking around. I get to point the bitch. You, 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 you. What? You, 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 you. Yeah. They party at my crib, you invited. They party at my crib, bring a lighter.